You know, the aim of the, the Christian life, it's, it's really, it, if you think about it, probably have like 10 different answers for 10 different people if I said, what is, the, what is the aim of the Christian life? And then if we were to make it even more nuanced, say, what is the goal of the Christian life? Uh, the aim of the Christian life, I really believe from Scripture, is to know and love Jesus. And the goal of the Christian life is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. I think the whole reason that the Lord comes down and visits us and saves us is not so that we're more moral or, or that we um, adjust our behavior with behavior modification and those kinds of things, um, or that things like start going right in our life. Uh, I do think there are certainly changes in our character, our behavior, because they come from our heart where the Lord changes us. But the goal, the, the, whole, the whole reason that happens is so that we can know the Lord, because he wants to know us. And then the reason we're not just sucked up into heaven as soon as we become followers of Jesus, the reason we're left here is because he's got, a, he's got some things for us to do. And the reason that you are still here if you are a follower of Christ is because you and I have an opportunity to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, uh, right after he was baptized, it says that he went, he went from there and preached the same message all over the place, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his whole life and ministry, he demonstrated what it looked like to be a part of the kingdom of heaven and how things were supposed to be. And so tonight, as we look at this passage that, that Colin just read, it's the last few verses, really famous verses in Matthew chapter 9 about how the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Uh, I think we start to see that Jesus is going to say, hey, I, I want you to be a part of bringing the kingdom to earth now, that's, that's very different than what a lot of us think our Christianity is for, and we're going to get into that. But since Colin has just read the text, we just, had, um, we just had some worship, I want to pray that the Lord would speak to us through his word, through the Holy Spirit. And, and so bow with me. Father, I ask that you would speak through your word tonight. You would continue to minister to us as we've heard a call to serve. We've heard a call for a local school. We've seen Chris be commissioned to go to France. Lord, we've seen um, your hand at work among us, and we're so grateful for that. We ask that you would continue to work. Lord, you love us, and you are kind to us, but your righteousness does not waver. And so I ask, Lord, that in your kindness, you would draw us to you. And so we lift this up in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. As, as we just read here at the end of this chapter, I, I just want to give a few thoughts on Jesus. I always think it's good if when we, leave, uh, when we leave a Tuesday night, if our mind is wrestling with Jesus and not like just like some other idea. I always want us to come back to Christ and he's inexhaustible. And so just a few thoughts. It says verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogue. I, I, I think there's a few things that we can learn from just that one little line right there. And so I'll just, uh, Paul, I didn't have this on the iPad, but I'll just mark a couple of things here. Uh, so 
I think the fact that Jesus went through all of the towns and the villages, I think that shows us that he really wants to have a personal touch. Things are gonna grow to the point where he has to send out delegates, he has to send out his disciples, but Jesus definitely wanted to demonstrate that he had a personal touch. In fact, Matthew is the only gospel writer who uses the word Emmanuel in his gospel. Emmanuel is a famous word that we hear at Christmas, which means God with us. It's taken out of, uh, out, out of Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Uh, and so it, Matthew uses that, I think, to, to show the Jewish people, hey, Jesus fulfills prophecy, but he also illustrates this really, really personal, wants to talk with you, wants to touch your ailment, uh, wants to speak words of healing over you, really uses this intimate picture of Jesus all throughout his gospel. And, and so I think the main reason that he includes it is is potentially to show the prophecy, but I think he illustrates it over and over again that Jesus really is God with us. And since Jesus has ascended up into heaven tonight, on a Sunday, on a Thursday morning in your room, driving to work on a Friday, whatever it may be, when you start sensing the Lord visiting you through the Holy Spirit, that is the, the love and the affection of Christ coming to speak with you, it often may be uncomfortable, but that's because he sees a cancer in your life and he loves you and he doesn't want to leave that, but it can also be wonderful and amazing. It can be a call to Paris, France. And so he still is this very, very personal God. And Matthew illustrates this over and over again. I, I wanna just walk you through what he does in this, in this whole chapter to get us to this last section here. So at the first part of chapter eight, we have, uh, we have this guy and these, these drawings. I like, that, like, I like that this is like one big story and I can keep my drawings. I did have a four-year-old erase this one. I redrew him. Um, and so He's missing some lines now that he's like really zoomed in. That's fine. This guy has leprosy and to open the chapter in chapter eight to demonstrate Emmanuel, God with us and bringing the kingdom to earth. This is really, really important. This idea of bringing the kingdom to earth. If you understand the gospel writer's language of Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus bringing the kingdom. This is very important because in the kingdom of God, there is no sickness. So what does he do to this guy? He heals him. Then there's a centurion who has a sick servant. Jesus heals the centurion servant and rewards his faith. And then a whole pile of people come up to Jesus who are sick and he heals them. And then there's a call of two folks to follow Jesus. One volunteers, uh, they both volunteer. Jesus basically talks them both out of it because we talked about this last week. These folks focused more on the call than the one who was calling. And then Matthew continues to tell his story of, of the power of Jesus. And that's where we have Jesus casting uh, or, or calming the sea when he does the famous story where he's asleep and he wakes up and he, and he says, peace, be still, and the sea is calm. And then he casts out these demons into pigs. The pigs run over the hill and, uh, and, and the pigs die and the demons are cast out. And then there's a paralytic that... They bring to Jesus, Jesus heals the paralytic, the paralytic gets up and walks, and then we had what we looked at last week, the call of Matthew. 
Same call that the other two guys had. Same call he gives everybody, come follow me. Matthew's life was actually more difficult to follow Jesus than a scribe who was already a religious leader and someone who was already one of Jesus' early adoptee disciples. And Matthew's call was much harder because he had to leave his whole life behind. And yet Matthew says yes to Jesus. And the question is why? Why would Matthew say yes? Because Matthew focused on the one calling him more than the call. And when you focus on the one calling you, Jesus, who's more powerful than the storms. Jesus, who's more powerful than leprosy. Jesus, who's more powerful than sickness. Jesus, who's more powerful than demons. When you focus on the one calling you, more than the call, because calls can be scary. And you realize he's good and he is strong. You will get up and you will leave the old life behind. And that's what he does. And then Jesus starts to tell more stories and he tells, he gives a teaching. And in the teaching in Matthew chapter nine, he talks about, about how he's doing a new thing. And he says, you can't, take, you can't take a new piece of cloth and put it on an old garment that has a hole in it. No, if you do, the, the cloth will stretch and it will tear and the garment will be worse than when, it's, when it started. Jesus is saying here, I'm doing something new. And there's all kinds of nuances there, but he's doing something new in your life when he wants to visit you as well. And then Matthew goes on and he tells a story about a man whose daughter had died and Jesus brings the daughter back to life. But before that happens, there's this woman and she reaches out to touch the hem of Jesus's robe. She had had an issue of bleeding for 12 years. She touches the hem of his robe and she is healed. And so Matthew tells all of these stories, all of these stories, including a couple more. He, he heals two blind men. And not only does he heal two blind men, he heals a mute man. He tells all of these stories. And as he tells each of these stories, he says to his disciples when he is finished, guys, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And then he starts the very next section of his writings, Matthew does, by saying, and then Jesus sent us out. And so there's so much beauty, so much architecture in the way that these writings are put together. But what we see is the incredible strength of Jesus, the incredible, the incredible authority of Jesus over every imaginable thing. And yet, every person who follows him has to do one thing in common. They all have to take a step of faith. No one just magically is following Jesus. Everybody who's going to follow him is going to have to leave something and take a step of faith and keep their eyes more on the one who is calling them than on what he is calling them to. And that's why I go back to the beginning. I really think the aim of the Christian life is to know and love Jesus. And the goal of the Christian life is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And so he does this. He goes throughout all the cities and he preaches, he preaches to the people. He says, uh, he goes to their, their villages, their synagogues, and he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And then he heals every disease and affliction. And I think it's very important to ask, what did Jesus preach? If you imagine, he like, if he, because he goes to the synagogues. He goes to people who he knows understand some religion. And every time he goes to a synagogue, he preaches. Now, 
and so like tonight, we had, uh, we had a, a, a call to say, hey, if you want to come help out at Sutton Middle School, come help out at Sutton Middle School. We had a commissioning for Chris Wong. This sermon was planned a long time ago. And the sermon is on the, hey, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so Chris was supposed to come a few weeks ago. It was a different passage. Um, we've been looking for a week to have, to have Paige come and share. And it just so happened, we did not say, what is the text that week? We just said, what week works for you? They were like, this week works best. Chris said, this week works best. And so it comes together. And so tonight, I have living sermon illustrations a school in Atlanta where the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Paris, France, where the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And Paige and crew are going, and Chris and crew are going. And so we're starting to see, oh, this is unbelievable. But Jesus, because all the texts were planned in the synagogues, he would walk in, and if he was the guest preacher that day, he would have to preach the text that had already been assigned but it was uncanny how many times he would walk in where it's recorded and he would read the text and he would have moments like this where he would say, the harvest is plentiful and laborers are few. How many of you know who Chris Wong is? And he would have these incredible, these incredible short little sermons where it was like, oh my goodness, I've never heard anyone speak like this. But in every sermon, every chance he had, he also, we know this from Matthew 4 verse 17, he would also preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, repent is not like a very friendly church word. If you have gone to other churches around, if you went to like cool youth group church and like, like lots of like other places, like lots of other places, people are just afraid of that word repent. I used to be afraid of that word repent because I was like, that's too strong. But it's a word in the Bible. And so I was like, you know what? Let's just look it up. Let's just look up repent. Repent is a compound word in the Greek. And the compound word means after considering. What we would say in common English would be reconsider. I've reconsidered. That is what repentance is. I used to go this way and this direction and do this thing. And then... I started sensing the voice of the Lord through the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit, through Christian community. I started sensing that God was speaking to me and I reconsidered the direction I was going and I took a step of faith because it always requires a step of faith and I started going in the other direction. I think reconsider is like so much more gentle sounding than, uh, than repent in 2023, but they're the same thing. Jesus was urging these people. He would heal them and then he would urge them, reconsider. Reconsider your thoughts of God. Reconsider your thoughts of what you think God ought to be and what you think he ought to do. Reconsider because I tell you, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's beautiful how he does this over and over. And so I just, I think he's still going from town to town and person to person trying to get us to reconsider that the life we've settled in, isn't into isn't the real reality of how things should be. How often are you quiet enough to hear him say in the noise of your life, reconsider. The way you're going, you think, you think is like the best possible scenario. But these people, 
in the New Testament had been tricked by the enemy, by culture, to settle into a less than best. And he's calling us to reconsider. And, and as, he, as he does that, he's, he's saying and showing, this is the kingdom of heaven. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. There's, uh, imagine, imagine if there was just one king, just one king, this past, these past few days um, on, on Friday, the days are a blur. Here's what happened. Heather and I volunteered to go with our friends Katie and Anders to take their two, four, and six-year-old to Disney World. We just got back this afternoon, and like it's a whirlwind. Never do that. Never volunteer. When you have kids, you make them be older. You make them be older before they go. Uh, and so like we took them, and it took four adults to wrangle those three little boys. They're feral, all those boys. <laughs> They are raised by wolves. Uh, and so it was the first time they had slept in a bed. I'm just kidding. Uh, but like, they, like they're, they're wild children. Uh, and so we, we were in Disney and everybody wanted to be king. Every one of those boys wanted to be king, especially the two-year-old who was trying to keep up with his brothers. Everybody wanted to be king. And as I'm studying this passage, I'm thinking, what if we could all just be okay with one king? What if like we just all let Jesus be in charge? Can you imagine the tranquility? What if Christians, just Christians, just decided, we'll just let Jesus be in charge instead of fighting each other all the time because Christians are really good at arguing with one another. Like the world might then see the love that we have for one another and be like, I want, I want in on that. But that's part of the kingdom. And that's also what's uncomfortable because the king was among them saying that there's just one king and it was him. It would, that would have been very hard, I think, to believe at the time. Really hard, I believe. Uh, I mean, it, he, as he's talking about this kingdom, he's demonstrating it because in God's kingdom, when he makes the world perfect, there won't be people with leprosy. There won't be people with cancer. There won't be people who are crying because their daughter has died. He, he's demonstrating this is what it will be like. And you know, just a quick pause. He does that for you sometimes. He fixes things that are broken in your life sometimes. I mean, miraculously. Sometimes it is, it is financially, he fixes you and you're like, this is unbelievable. Sometimes it is relationally, he fixes you and you're like, this is unbelievable. Sometimes it's physically, you have an ailment and the doctors can't figure it out. It's untreatable and you have a lot of people praying for you and the next time you go, it's gone. The thing is gone. We need to be careful that we don't make a theology out of that. That says, this is what happens when you pray just right or live just right or do the just right thing. What he has done in your life is he has given you a special grace evidencing the kingdom of heaven. And it's a witness of how one day all things will be right. And you, you got to steward that thing that he fixes as a testimony to him but not as a blanket statement that this is what he does for everybody right now. That's how poor teaching gets, gets spread, and that's how people get real bad misconceptions of who the Lord is. And it says that, it says if you'll look real like, 
I'll just show you on here. If you look carefully, it says, I've lost my, there it is, I found it. Um, it says he's doing a couple of different things here. It says he's teaching and he's proclaiming. These are not just added words. These are actually two different words that Matthew included. They mean two different things. So this is the style of Jesus. Remember, I'm just trying to help us be more familiar with the man himself. Jesus' style of teaching. And, and we'll just, I'm, I'm, see, I'm not even using all the right words. Like I'm just using one word for the whole thing. Other people would say his style of preaching. Uh, his style of communicating was twofold. He would do a little bit of this where he's teaching. We're reasoning together. I'm throwing things out. Now, this is more of a lecture style, you know, like, but afterwards, I'll be in the lobby and we can talk. Or if you want to meet up, we can talk. And so that's, that's a teaching. So he did this often. He taught. Sometimes it was small groups. Sometimes it was large groups. But he taught. But it also says that he proclaimed what Jesus did in his teachings in these churches, in these towns, in these villages, at some point, he calls for a decision. And this is where we get the idea of preaching. Preaching calls for a response. Proclaiming calls for a response. Jesus never let people be perpetual fence straddlers. Eventually, he calls for a response from everyone, including you and including me. So as he goes from town to town, village to village, and he's preaching, he's, he's calling for a response. You can't just sit there forever and try to figure out, well, maybe one day I'll decide. Because in doing that, you've decided. And you've decided to say no to him. Now, he's patient. He's more patient than you or I. He's kind. He's more kind than you or I, but he is also righteous, much more righteous than you or I. He is perfectly righteous, and his righteousness does not waver. It does not bend. And sin will always end up being, being punished by the wrath of God for those not under the grace of Jesus, or it will be it will be overlooked because of the blood that Jesus shed for those who have placed their faith in him. But you can't waver between two opinions forever. Uh, in fact, I was reading about indecisiveness because this is a fast, this is like a little side note, fascinating thing for me because the more information, see, I come like, I come packaged in like the pre-internet package. Um, that's, that's my, where I came from. And so like the pre-internet package, we've seen both sides. I remember having to remember things. It was unbelievable. People would ask a question and you were like, oh man. I remember when I was a kid, people would ask a question and you would go to this thing called an encyclopedia. And you would like, be like, hold on a minute. And you would go through and you would look and you were like, ah, and your parents would be like, make sure you can spell it. And you would like try to find it. And so now there's things called Siri. You speak it and, and things in your house tell you stuff. It's unbelievable. All this has happened very, very quickly, but you would think with more information, decisions would be made easier and easier, and you would just be like the most decisive. We'd be the most decisive people in the whole world. We're actually less decisive than we've ever been with more information than ever before. It's analysis paralysis, 24-7, buyer's remorse, nonstop, 
And yet we have this man who was proclaiming in the first century and still proclaiming today that at some point we have to decide. There was a, a, a New York Times article on how to, how to maybe be less indecisive or not. And, uh, and it said, but one of the most important things for recovering undeciders to realize and accept is that they will never have all the information. Never have all the information. And then referencing Steve Jobs' famous line, you can only connect the dots, or you can, you can connect the dots only looking backward. And Mr. Urban is a person they cited before. Mr. Urban urged anyone frozen by indecision to simply pick a good next dot, saying it doesn't have to be perfect, it's just a dot along the way. Now, I would disagree with that part. I do think there's ways to know the next dot. But what I really, really liked about this excerpt from the article was that what you have to accept is even with all the information, you'll never have all the information. And at some point, you, you have to decide. And at some point, the people in this text had to decide. They saw a wave stop. They saw people healed. They saw all kinds of things happen. And yet many of them walked away. I really think so many of them walked away because they stopped thinking about the one who was calling them. And they focused on what the call was. And they got scared to death. I think that's why Peter sank. You know, this is an old idea. In Joshua 24, 15, Joshua's talking to the Israelites and he says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua had just as much information as everyone else. And he just decided that is the best, the best next dot to be unwavering in my following of the Lord. That's what Matthew's building to in this whole passage in chapters nine, eight and nine. He's building this whole thing of what happens when he proclaims to you, it is time to choose fish or cut bait. And so he calls over and over again, and, and he demonstrates what the kingdom of heaven is like. He heals every disease. We still do that today, by the way. Our healing of every disease is, is less blindness and speaking and dead people coming back to life, but there is healing, and we're a part of that as this church. Sometimes it's going to Clarkston, Sometimes it's helping out with uh, one of you with a job search as we pray over you and we network. Sometimes it's prayer in the back, which we're going to have tonight as we worship. Sometimes it's the ministry that Paige was talking about, going to Sutton Middle School and pouring into middle schoolers. Uh, sometimes it's a cornhole tournament. Sometimes it's a Christmas dance, and you're like, whoa, Thomas, how is that healing every disease? Well, I've done three weddings that came from that. They, I, we healed the disease of loneliness. Uh, and so, not really, but, um, but there, there are things where people come to social events in a healthy Christian environment, and when they get here, what you don't know is all the stuff going on, and they're like, I just need somebody to hang out with me. I just need friends. And because you are in general so loving and kind, 
You've been the hands and feet of Jesus in helping heal people. And so we do that in many ways around here. And, and then in verse 36, it says that uh, when he saw the crowds, I love this. Remember, we're, we're really just focusing on the caller here. When he saw the crowds, this is such an important word. The gospel writers use this word a lot, saw. They want you to know that Jesus didn't have someone just hand him a schedule. He wasn't the president of the United States and didn't know where he was going next or who he was talking to next or whose hands he was shaking and babies he was kissing. They want you to know that like he was very intentional and this transcends time. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still sees you and he sees me and this is very important. And what he sees, he sees things that you can't see with your eyes. He sees that they're harassed and helpless. Now, you, you can't see that because, uh, I mean, we're not talking like a Holocaust scene here. We're talking about they were, they were in the markets. They were going to synagogue and going home. The Romans were very good at taking over an area and letting you continue life as normal. When Jesus, when it says that he saw that they were harassed and helpless, he sees the things that eyes cannot see. And it's so good that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever because when he sees you, he doesn't see what that guy sees when he looks at you or that girl or the boss or the parent. He sees you. And he sees what's in you. And then, what's his response? It's compassion. Let's just pause right there. I think for the longest time, I thought that when Jesus really saw me, his response was revulsion. Not compassion. And I think I thought it was Revulsion because I would feel conviction. I would have a sense I should stop doing certain things. I'd go to church week after week, and it was like it was like the pastor would start the sermon off, Dear Thomas, here's some things going on in your life that should change. It was like he knew me, and I was like, Oh no, this is just because the Lord does things like that to us. Don't mistake that for something other than his compassion. And here's a proof for you. He doesn't just convict and say, go fix it and come back when it's done. He's not your parent when they were like, go clean your room and tell me when it's done. No, he's like, man, that room, that thing is a wreck, huh? And you're like, yeah, it's kind of a wreck. And he's like, you want to go clean it together? That's how he works. He steps, he doesn't just see into our lives. When we say, come on, he steps into our lives. And he walks with us and he walked with them every step. And it says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I did look up the word compassion. I was in like a lookup mood. And so I looked up a lot of words in this passage. It's a short little passage, so I looked up a lot of words. Um, compassion is one of those interesting words. Uh, it means that when he saw them, 
his guts hurt. And they thought that the gut was the center of emotion when this was written. If it was written in 2023, it might say when Jesus saw them, his heart hurt for them. And it's the kind of thing that makes you bend over and pause because you're like, oh, it hurts me so bad to see that. That's the man we follow. That's the man that went to the cross. That's the man that we worship. And there's obviously another head nod here to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 56.3 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned everyone, everyone has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. This idea that we are, we are like sheep without a shepherd is also a New Testament idea. It's certainly in the book of John where we've been preaching on Sunday mornings. It's also in Romans and Ephesians. In Romans 6, it says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus sees these sheep that are, that are doomed. They're dead sheep walking and he wants to give us new life and give them new life. And in Ephesians 2, 1, then verses 4 and 5, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And then I love verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Then he goes on after all that. He's done all this ministry. His heart hurts for the people, and he finishes this famous section by turning to his disciples. He turns to his disciples, and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then there's a command to ask the Lord, which is to pray to send out workers into the harvest. In just a minute, we're going to go into our worship time and we're going to have a special emphasis of of having you pray for folks, you be prayed over all in the back of the room like a normal Tuesday night. But if you are a person who has reconsidered and you're following the Lord. You're not, one thing, one thing you're not to become is just a consumer. Jason just led a group to Israel to, to tour around. I'm taking a group over there next week to do ministry in Bethlehem. And uh, we'll get to see a, a couple of places. But one of the places we'll get to see is, is the Dead Sea. And Jason can tell you, and, and anybody who's been there can tell you, when you go to the Dead Sea, it's this incredible experience. Um, I think we've got a picture of it somewhere. Maybe I put it on the slide. But we do have the, the Dead Sea is this incredible experience, 10 times saltier than, than the ocean. So salty, it's called the Dead Sea because basically only bacteria can live there. And so only, only bacteria can live in, in the Dead Sea. Nothing can live in there. But do you know why all the water just, 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 just is stagnant, just like, bleh? it's not because a spring comes up and like fills this place. It's because the Jordan River goes in. The Jordan River is incredible. 
Tons of life in the Jordan River. If you ever go there and you do a baptism ceremony, you just wait around, catfish will come and nibble your legs like nonstop. Some are very large, slightly, slightly frightening. Um, but they'll like come up and they'll nibble your legs and stuff. And you're like, there's so much life in here. Where does this go? And then somebody tells you, oh, it empties into the Dead Sea. And you're like, well, what happened to the Dead Sea? Well, the Dead Sea has no outflow, just inflow. And so many Christians see Jesus do amazing things even in their lives. And they're content to just consume. And what happens is if you're, if you're not careful, if you just consume church service after church service, podcast after podcast, book after book, class after class, thing after thing, you may very well become the Dead Sea. And you'll wonder why. There's no outflow. Jesus wants your whole being to know and love him. But the reason he left you here is because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so you got to ask, how am I joining in that harvest What's my ministry? What's my call? That's why tonight was so perfect. We have two living testimonies. The testimony of Paige Dees in the school she's ministering to and asking you to join. The testimony of Chris who's gonna go live in Paris. It's incredible what we have here. And so I've got just a few questions that I'm gonna put on the, on the screen for the, the prayer time tonight in our worship. I want you to really think about Praying for the harassed and the helpless. And some of you, that may be your worst enemy who's not a Christian. But I'll tell you something I heard Al Mohler say when he was here for our Duck and Goose conference. He said, it's really hard to not love someone that you pray for. Jesus ministered to people that I imagine other folks thought were hard to minister to, and he loved them. I bet he prayed for them. So I want you to start by asking the Lord of the harvest to send out workers to people that are really hard for you to be around. And I want you to pray for what your work might be. But this might be like level two, and there's some of you that need to go back to the first part. You're the people that Jesus came to minister to in this story. You are the the harassed and the helpless. And right now he is asking, he is proclaiming to let you do a work, for him to let let him do a work in your life. And tonight we hope the answer is yes. And so I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have folks in the back of the room. Will and, the, and Hannah are going to come, and they're going to lead us in, in a few songs. And we're going to have just a chance to pray and ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers and plead with him that he might also send us out, that we would not become like that Dead Sea. Lord, you are compassionate And Lord, some of us here tonight are harassed and helpless. We need you tonight to become our shepherd. Lord, there's so many, so many options, so many thoughts to consider, so many things 
But Lord, as you proclaim the kingdom to our hearts through your word, through your spirit, would you give us strength to follow the one who calls us and not be scared of the call? And Lord, would you do business in our hearts about what our outflow is supposed to be because the harvest is plentiful. And if the gospel was good enough to save us, it's good enough to save anybody, Lord. So Lord, would you move in this place and stir our hearts to a great affection that we might follow you, that we might pour out for you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, Lord. Amen.